Welcome to the Radical Truth Podcast. I am your host, Glenn Meldrum, and this podcast is brought to you by In His Presence Ministries. Visit us on the web at www.ihpministry.com. We are almost done studying Acts chapter 10, with only two verses to go. Before we dig into these two verses, I want to make a couple of comments on verses 45 and 46, which we barely touched on before closing our lesson. The verses read, The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished at the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. The six disciples that traveled with Peter were shocked that the Lord saved these Gentiles without first having to convert to Judaism. This was simply out of their box, to say the least. What was the evidence in this case that proved to them that the Lord had truly saved Cornelius and everyone in his house? That they spoke in other tongues just as what happened on the day of Pentecost, when 120 disciples were baptized in the Holy Spirit and spoke in other tongues. Now I want to clarify that speaking in other tongues isn't normally the evidence we use to determine if people have come to salvation, as some cults assert, such as oneness or the apostolic churches in America. They claim that you must be baptized in water only in the name of Jesus and then come out of the water speaking in tongues or you aren't genuinely saved. The oneness cult also rejects the Trinity and holds to the error called modalism, where they claim that the Father became the Son who afterwards became the Holy Spirit. The theological implications of this doctrinal error is huge, and it moves those who hold to it outside of the biblical faith into the realm of damnable cults. They also claim that proof of salvation is that they must speak in other tongues when they come out of the water or they weren't truly saved. This is salvation by works and rituals, not salvation by grace through faith. They use the verses we are looking at to support their doctrinal error. But to do so, they must reject the other verses that clearly expose their error. It's not my intention in this lesson to expose the lie of modalism. There are many good books and articles that have been written on this subject to effectively expose such lies. So if you want to know more about this, then study the branch of theology that's called apologetics, which deals with this issue. The situation with Cornelius was unique, and the need to open the door for salvation to the Gentiles was great. So special measures were needed to establish that these non-Jews had truly come to Christ. This had to be done quickly, in a way that was above reproach, and with thoroughly convincing proof, so that any resistance against what the Lord was doing would be effectively silenced. There wasn't a time to wait for the evidence of genuine conversion to be revealed through a transformed life that produces the fruit of the Spirit. There had to be something that would prove that salvation had come to them at that exact moment. When people are genuinely saved, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in their life. If the Spirit isn't living in people in this personal way, then they aren't authentic followers of Jesus. This is where the fruit of the Spirit comes into the life and then grows through proper cultivation. The indwelling Spirit is different than the baptism in the Holy Spirit, which is commonly referred to as a second work of grace. This is where the Holy Spirit fills a believer in a unique way and gives them the gift of tongues as evidence that they have received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. The tongues are heavenly language that's given to everyone who is baptized in the Holy Spirit. This is what happened in Acts chapter 2, where the outward manifestation of tongues was evidence that the inward work had actually taken place. Without there being a physical manifestation of the inward work of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, it would be subjective, 
without there being any real evidence that people had been baptized in the Spirit. I recently did a search on YouTube on the baptism in the Holy Spirit, and if you want to get totally confused over the issue, or be sure to reject the gift of the Spirit baptism altogether, then watch all those videos. I'm convinced that YouTube is a tool hell is exploiting to cause greater division within the church. This is the same with a tremendous amount of the doctrines of the church. YouTube is causing disunity and confusion, not bringing unity to the church. More and more, I am warning people to stay away from YouTube, other than using it to listen to worship or figure out how to fix your car. Even with the subject of worship, you'll find the worship Gestapo out there attacking anything they don't like and call it a work of the devil. It's outrageous. They are only causing greater division and confusion, dividing churches and separating brethren. They aren't unifying the true church or exposing genuine errors, but only advancing their narrow religious ideas like the Pharisees of old did. I have seen many people thrown into confusion by watching YouTube videos, some who have rejected the faith altogether or exchanged one doctrine for another. I put this podcast out on YouTube as a means to get it out to a few more people, but that doesn't mean I like the platform itself. There's a lot of evil on it, and a large portion of professing Christians don't know how to manage it, so they either waste a lot of time watching worthless videos or watch things that are evil or will confuse their faith. Anyway, the needs in Acts chapter 10 was totally unique. For those new believers needed to somehow give evidence that they had been saved, and the most convincing way to do this was through the Spirit baptism and their speaking in other tongues. From the response of the six disciples to hearing Cornelius and those in his house speak in other tongues, it's obvious that they were among the 120 disciples that were baptized in the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. By being eyewitnesses of that first Pentecostal outpouring, they were convinced that what happened to those Gentiles was from the Lord, that he was saving Gentiles without first converting to Torah law and its rituals. That is absolutely astounding. Coming to verses 47 and 48, we are told, Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. First off, we must remember that water baptism doesn't save anyone, not babies or adults. The purpose of water baptism is simple. It's a way to testify before others that they have repented of their sin and been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. For Peter to say that they should be baptized in water is proof that he was convinced that the Lord had saved them. Otherwise, he wouldn't have commanded that they be baptized in water. Water baptism is referred to by some as believer's baptism, since it only has value for those who are old enough to repent of their sins and surrender their life to Christ. Infant baptism is absolutely worthless other than giving a baby a bath. But it can be damnable by giving a false assurance of salvation when there's been no repentance or surrender to Messiah as they get older. Some cults claim you must be baptized in water to be saved, but this is a blatant lie, and it's a perversion of the phenomenal account of how the door of salvation was opened to the Gentiles. Paul clearly stated in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Peter acknowledged that Cornelius and those with him had been genuinely saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit. This means that they had entered the kingdom of God and were now members of the mystical body of Christ, which is the true church. Peter asked an important question. 
Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? He was in essence asking if there was any objection that had substance as to why these Gentiles couldn't be baptized in water as a testimony that they had repented and entered Christ's kingdom. Since there wasn't any opposition to the apostle, he ordered that they be baptized in water. This seems to imply that Peter didn't baptize them in water himself, but the other disciples did, or at least they assisted him. This was a day of great rejoicing, and the new disciples asked Peter to stay with them for a while to instruct them in the faith, and this he did. I imagine that Peter and the six other disciples were concerned over what would become of all this and chose only to stay for a few days. Discipleship takes more than a few days, but in that time, Peter and the others with him could help them understand the basics of salvation and what this walk of faith looks like now that they came to know that Jesus was the promised Messiah. As we turn to chapter 11, we will find that the story continues through verse 18. This is the account of how news quickly spread through the church that some Gentiles had been saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit without first converting to Judaism. This sent shockwaves through the disciples in Jerusalem and around Israel. In verses 1 and 2 we read, The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him. This news spread like wildfire, and unfortunately, many critics arose out of the circumcised believers to attack Peter. The circumcised believers refers to those Jewish disciples that staunchly held that to become a follower of Messiah, Gentiles had to adhere to Torah law, including circumcision. It's terrible how quick we are to condemn anything we don't understand or are afraid of, and this is exactly what happened. The Jewish Christians couldn't conceive of the faith Jesus brought them to be available to Gentiles unless they first converted to Torah law. Peter probably went to Jerusalem to defend himself from the attacks that were coming against him. He had merely obeyed the Lord, and it was the Holy Spirit that did the work of baptizing those Gentiles in the Holy Spirit and giving them the gift of tongues. So why be angry at Peter for what the Lord did? Yet their anger at Peter was actually anger at God. This was the work of God, not the work of man. Yet Peter needed to help those who were struggling over this turn of events to comprehend that it was solely the Lord's doing. How strange. Some disciples were angry that people were being saved because they couldn't comprehend the Lord doing such a thing in the way that he did it. Verse 3 tells us at what point the critics rose to attack Peter by saying, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Wow, that's a tough one. <laughs> Their idea was that Peter had made himself unclean by going into the home of a Gentile and eating his unclean food that could have been offered to idols or still had blood in it. They made these accusations without first knowing the truth of the story. They were quick to judge, but they weren't quick to embrace what God was doing because it was against their traditions and opinions. This wasn't unique to them, since the same kind of things happens to churches all over the world even today. It's easy for disciples to become Pharisees that are bound by religion and blind to what the Lord is doing. What people don't understand, they are prone to attack. We don't know all that went on with the attacks against Peter or any of the other accusations that were brought against him. It appears that the apostle handled all of this in a very calm and loving manner, probably by remembering how Jesus acted when he was attacked unjustly. Peter knew he was in the right, 
And this wasn't an expression of pride, but a fact. God's defense was that he saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit Cornelius and all those Gentiles in his house. To argue against God is an act in utter futility, for he is always right, and we are always wrong when we are believing was contrary to him and his word. In verse 4, we are told that Peter began to explain everything to them precisely as it happened. He didn't embellish the story or attack those who were attacking him. He merely told the story without any exaggerations and let God be his defense by proving that the Lord saved and filled those Gentiles with the Holy Spirit. This was the wisest strategy that he could have taken. I will read what Peter said so we can hear the story again. And this goes from verse 5 through verse 15. Peter said, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds of the air. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was pulled up to heaven again. Right then three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. One thing we see from these verses is that the six disciples that went with Peter to the house of Cornelius traveled with him to Jerusalem to be witnesses of what the Lord had done. Here's the power of multiple credible eyewitnesses. Seven men were testifying about what the Lord did. If Peter went to Jerusalem alone to tell the story, I doubt if he would have received such acceptance. The fact that there were seven eyewitnesses forced the doubters to believe their testimony, whether they liked it or not. It was an extremely radical event that changed the face of the church in profound ways that would have far-reaching implications right into our day. If they rejected the testimony of these seven men, then they would undermine the integrity and life and death and resurrection and ascension of Christ, all of which were confirmed by faithful, credible eyewitnesses. The religious elite rejected the testimony of all the eyewitnesses about Jesus, and if these men did the same thing in this setting, then they would be no better than the Sanhedrin council. They would be just like those self-righteous hypocrites that rejected the testimony of the apostles and other credible eyewitnesses, and were guilty of shedding the blood of Christ. If the disciples rejected the importance of eyewitnesses in civil and religious matters, then they would be rejecting the clear teaching of Torah. We can see from all this that Holy Spirit was revealing His infinite genius by forcing the primitive church to accept what the Lord was doing in saving Gentiles. This doesn't mean that local house churches in Israel would open their doors to fellowship with uncircumcised Gentile believers, but at least they would acknowledge that God was saving them. The Gentiles could then grow their own congregations, which is exactly what they did. The end of the controversy wasn't over, though. Eventually, Paul would be brought into the issue because he became the apostle to the Gentiles. 
This is rather ironic since Paul, who once persecuted Christians, became a powerful defender that the Lord was saving and baptizing Gentiles without first having to convert to Judaism. Peter said in verses 16 and 17, Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? Peter made this point in relation to what happened when Cornelius and those in the house were baptized in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. It was the Holy Spirit bringing to his remembrance what the Lord taught so that he would have an easier time accepting that Gentiles were now entering the faith. At first glance, what Jesus said appears to be a reference to what John the baptizer said in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's a pretty good word. Notice that John's prophetic word doesn't put an ending time frame upon the baptism in the Holy Spirit. But Peter wasn't quoting John the Baptist. He was actually quoting Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, where the resurrected Savior said, For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Here again, there's no time limit put upon the Spirit's baptism other than that the Holy Spirit will begin a new work in a few days' time, which we know happened on the day of Pentecost. Though some commentators claim that this refers only to the apostles or possibly to the 120 that were in the upper room, we can see from what Peter said that this was never the way that the early church understood what Jesus said. It's obvious that Peter believed the promise was made to Christians of all eras and wasn't limited to a few believers in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. The salvation of Cornelius broadened Peter's understanding of how the baptism in the Holy Spirit was a promise for both Jew and Gentiles for all who should believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. When Peter saw that Holy Spirit fell upon those Gentiles, he knew it was a fulfillment of our Lord's promise. I think it's a lot safer to believe what Jesus said and those first disciples than those doubters who reject what they taught and are 2,000 years removed from the initial event. Jesus taught in John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another comforter to be with you forever the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. The only point I want to make from these two verses is that Holy Spirit will be with his church forever, both in this life and throughout eternity. This includes the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of these people beginning at salvation and also as a second work of grace in those who by faith receive the Spirit baptism. Peter made it clear that the Gentiles received the same spirit baptism that the 120 did on the day of Pentecost. This was supported by the testimony of other eyewitnesses, and I received that same identical spirit baptism almost 2,000 years later. So to reject what happened to the Gentiles would be to deny what happened on the day of Pentecost, and such a thought would be unthinkable for those who experienced the initial baptism of the Holy Spirit, whether then or now. Peter then asked the question, who was I to think that I could oppose God? Yet yeah, people oppose God all the time. But Peter was a man that was pursuing God. He didn't say that to manipulate his hearers, but to make it clear that he didn't have another agenda than to obey what God was doing. In verse 18, we are told, When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, 
so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. We learn from this that Holy Spirit brings unity to the saints, yet that will only happen if people are open to what the Spirit is teaching and doing. How strange! It was the baptism in the Holy Spirit that brought unity to the infant church, and it's the baptism in the Holy Spirit that brings much division today. It's the same identical Holy Spirit. The problem has never been Holy Spirit, but people's sinful nature that causes them to be divisive and attack what they don't understand or are afraid of. We see another time that the baptism in the Holy Spirit was used by the Lord to manifest Himself to people and to help them know His perfect will. On the day of Pentecost, the saints were united seeking for the promised Holy Spirit. And so it was when the Lord baptized those Gentiles in the Spirit so that they would have power to be witnesses of who Jesus is. On that faithful day in the home of a Gentile soldier, the people had been accepted by God and placed into his true church, and the Spirit baptism was given as clear evidence of what the Lord was doing. It takes teachable hearts to see the truth and say yes to God, and that's what we see in these early believers, and that's what these early believers proved themselves to be. What Holy Spirit did silenced all the arguments of the critics. They couldn't deny the fact that God had granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. The little addition of the word even in this sentence reveals something about how the Jewish disciples thought about non-Jews. The Jewish church never imagined that Gentiles would become part of the kingdom of God unless they first converted to Torah law. All those good Jews that became disciples of Christ would have never thought that tax collectors, prostitutes, and zealots could become followers of Messiah, much less the disinherited of society. But the ranks of the disciples swelled with the likes of such people, even some being numbered among the original apostles. Now the radical Jesus took everything to a whole new level, to use a popular saying of our day. The Savior was not only saving many of the worst in Jewish society, but now he was saving Gentiles and filling them with the Holy Spirit. I really like how the disciples worded what the Lord was doing, that he had granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. This is a fact about true repentance, that it gives new life, new life both in this life and eternally in the one to come. The repentance that gives life is a gift from God, and as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2, that it's the goodness of God that gives us the gift of repentance. This gift was now freely being offered to Gentiles, and it was time for the Jewish church to overcome their prejudice and to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every people, tribe, and nation, just like Jesus told them to. Paul would become a major catalyst in the gospel spreading into the Gentile world. This is how the Lord designed the plan of salvation to work. Salvation first came to the Jews, who were called to be Christ's ambassadors. Their responsibility was to take the message of salvation to the ends of the earth, no matter who the people were, Jew or Gentile. Once the gospel got a hold of Gentiles, then they would become the ambassadors to other people groups and nations, and so the message would continue to spread throughout the world. The message that was to spread is the message of repentance, and that there is no other name than the name of Jesus under heaven by which people can be saved. Turning our attention to verses 19 and 20, we get another look at what the Lord was doing to open the door of salvation to the Gentiles. What happened with Peter and Cornelius paved the way for what comes next. The verses read, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. 
Some of them, however, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Persecution began with the murder of Stephen and grew in intensity in Jerusalem, Samaria, and the nation at large. This caused many of the believers to flee Israel for safer lands. This would have been easier for Hellenistic Jews who were born outside of Israel because they would be going back to their Jewish families. For those who didn't have families in other lands, it would be harder to start over by themselves. They either went to cities that had a Jewish population and used that setting as a means to preach the gospel to fellow Jews, or they went to areas where Jewish believers had settled and built a community of faith. Some of the disciples that had been dispersed began ministering the gospel to fellow Jews, but some of them began evangelizing Gentiles, and the Lord gave them much success. They may have started ministering to Gentiles because news about what happened with Peter and Cornelius had reached them. News would have spread on how the apostles and disciples in Jerusalem accepted the fact that the Lord was bringing Gentiles to the faith without having to hold the Torah law. Those disciples probably found that Gentiles were more open to the gospel than were their fellow Jews, and we see this happen with the missionary activity of Paul. When the Gentiles began responding to the gospel, and at the same time the Jews were predominantly rejecting their Messiah, these Jewish believers continued to labor in their fruitful ministry fields among non-Jews. Another possibility is that the dispersed Jewish believers somehow came to share the gospel with Gentiles who gladly received the message and placed their faith in Christ. They might have done this without knowing what was going on with Peter and salvation coming to some Gentiles. If this was the case, then the Lord was confirming among these dispersed disciples what the Lord was doing in Israel through Peter. The results of what happened with those disciples preaching the gospel to the Gentiles is seen in verse 21. The Lord's hand was with them. A great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. The Lord was defending the work he was doing through Peter by saving a great number of Gentiles in Antioch. The love of God was being revealed in his calling non-Jews to salvation and revealing to them that the Jewish Messiah had died, rose again, to redeem all of them as well. In these verses, we are seeing a little more of God's plan of salvation for mankind unfold. The Lord seeking to save Gentiles wasn't a plan B because the Jews rejected their Messiah. This was always God's plan, and it took all this time to unfold the plan of salvation so that Jew and Gentile could be saved. We learn from verse 22 that news of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. I imagine that this news caused big stir among the disciples in Jerusalem. Remember, Peter had to face some of these believers that weren't open to Gentiles entering the kingdom of God without first converting to the Mosaic law. These disciples may have caused a big stink with this fresh news of salvation spreading among the Gentiles. It seems strange that people who call themselves followers of Messiah would be angry over people getting saved, but we can sometimes be very small-minded people. I say this because of the sinful nature of people, and Paul had to face such opposition with people that are referred to as Judaizers. These were men that claimed to be disciples of Christ, but were pushing that Gentiles needed to adhere to Torah law. One of the things that they were pushing is that Gentiles must be circumcised, but to be circumcised, they would have to hold the Torah law. We aren't told who actually sent Barnabas to Antioch to learn the fact about the reports that they were receiving in Jerusalem about more Gentiles getting saved. It could have been the Apostle James who gave the order since he was the overseer of the church in Jerusalem. 
There was probably other leaders involved making the decision to send Barnabas to Antioch to determine what was going on. In verse 23, we are told, When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their heart. What a great response. In our next lesson, we will take a look at Barnabas, but from verse 1, we see a man that loved God and wanted to obey the Lord's command. He rejoiced that the lost were being saved, and he didn't have a problem with them being non-Jews or that they hadn't first converted to Judaism. He must have encouraged both the Jewish disciples that were evangelizing the people of Antioch and the new converts themselves. My guess is that the disciples were leading these people to Jesus and were also helping them get grounded in the word by discipling them. Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, was living up to his name by encouraging the disciples to remain faithful to Jesus and to love him with all of their heart. Now there's a message that needs to be preached today in churches across this country. Thank you for listening to The Radical Truth with your host, Glenn Meldrum. We at In His Presence Ministries pray that this weekly podcast will be a blessing to you. Please tell others about it and subscribe yourself to this free podcast. Don't forget to visit our website at www.ihpministry.com. See you again next time, and may God richly bless you as you seek Him in spirit and in truth. Come drink your fill Let healing walk